Ladies and gentlemen, make way for your four hosts. There's Ross, a man so passionate that he could turn any airline feud into a full-blown Kardashian drama. Then there's Christos, the only one of our four hosts who actually knows anything about flying a plane. Then there's Tom, a man so loud that he can still be heard over the roar of a GE90 engine. And finally, the man with the news, and the only one who talks any sense, there's Nick. This is the Radio Runway Podcast. We're back. We are back. For episode five tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and we are excited because let me tell you, it's been a roller coaster of four episodes, and we have received so much love from episode four featuring First Officer Mitch Hutchison, and we are rolling off of the back with that with a banger of an episode tonight. So without further ado, gentlemen, how are you this evening? Yeah, I'm doing good. well, mate. Doing well. How are you? Pleasure to be back, mate. Always <laughs> awesome to be here. Yeah, and I, I can't I can't wait to show the listeners what we have in store for tonight because we have our very own the only one of our four hosts who knows anything about flying has prepared the black box for tonight. And it oh, is yeah. my understanding yes, yes. that you have come prepared. I definitely have come prepared, boys, and I think for us especially, loving aviation, tonight's black box episode will be really intriguing for all of us and especially for our listeners at home. I am very excited for that. But before we get into that, let me just tell you about our wonderful friends at Collectors Aircraft Models Australia. Established in 1996 in Melbourne as an exclusively aircraft model retailer, since the early days, they have grown to be Australia's largest outlet in the die-cast, wooden-carved and push-fit markets covering all commercial, military sport and general aviation in all leading scales. They source their stock from leading manufacturers from both within Australia and the world over, regularly receiving updates from manufacturers and suppliers as to what's new and being developed. Boys, I realise not only are we regular shoppers of the store, but Camos is older than you three. Yeah, pretty much. That's true. That That is true. true. Not older than you, though. Let's put that out there. (laughs) That didn't need it. I didn't mention that for a reason. (laughs) All I'm going to say is, guys... All our listeners, make sure you get in before Nick does because I guarantee it when the new A380 for Emirates comes out, that thing will be sold out. I'm, I'm definitely buying one. Yeah, yeah. I will be buying one too. And to be honest... So that's that, pretty much four down, Ross including. I wouldn't be surprised one. if it sold out like hotcakes, to be honest. Gentlemen, I, along with the three of you, I'm sure, suggest everyone head in to Collectors Aircraft Models Australia that's in true. Braybrook or shop online and find whatever aircraft from whatever airline is personal to you or whatever you're interested Even in. Even sign up to their newsletter and get a head start on what's uh, what's to come into the store. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, we also have some housekeeping this week. I believe, Nick, you have an apology to make. I do have an apology. It was pointed out by our wonderful viewer and father of Tom, Scott Conway, who... <laughs> Correctly picked up on the fact that I said that Saudia did not have a low-cost carrier. Well, in fact, it turns out that they do. It's called Flyer Deal. But there was also another low-cost carrier that I searched up off the top of my head, which was called Fly Nas. So Fly Nas. Yeah, Fly Nas. Yep. Wow. So there's a few low-cost carriers going around in Saudi Arabia. So once again, I want to apologize. <laughs> I want there to we apologize. go. I, ha- I have a request. Maybe we should get Scott Conway to assist Tom with editing in terms of quality control. That way, something like this doesn't go miss. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know It'll what we need? Lawless. We need, we need him to sit in as a fact checker. And any time we say something live during the recording that's a little bit skew if he can jump in with the uh, correction. Yeah, we, should so get, we should get him on the game show. Every 10 seconds. <laughs> Especially when I'm talking. I've made a few mistakes. I... I want to apologise. There we go. I'd just like go. to add a quick note into housekeeping too. More of a congratulations. I wasn't going to say anything to the boys because I wanted it to be a surprise. But to our listeners at home, our very own Nick here has been successful in getting his remote drone license. So congratulations to Nick. Uh, thank you, boys. It is, a, you boys. it is a big step. Yeah, yeah, uh, remote piloted drones. Is a growing uh, part of the aviation industry, and it's a big step for you, Nick. So well done, mate, on get, uh, getting that achievement. Nah, thank you very much, and mate. I uh, really appreciate it. As Alan has said about you already as a drone pilot. Our pilots are probably some of the most experienced pilots <laughs> in the world. 
experience with all with, from Alan. To be fair, yeah, with all it, two hours, you're pretty experienced. <laughs> no. what hey, is, hey, how many, five how many hours, stripes, please? Thank oh, you very much. Sorry, five hours. How yeah. many stripes do you have on your uniform now uh, when you go flying your drones? Four stripes. Oh, awesome! I'm hey, the captain. Hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm the captain. I would now. not trust myself <laughs> with the drone. I would not trust myself with the drones. <laughs> oh yeah, I wouldn't trust you with a drone. What? Wow. <laughs> Now, um, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to also reiterate once again, check out our Instagram for all future giveaways that take place uh, for any updates to do with the podcast. If you want to know exactly when the next episode is released or you want a fun engagement with some Q&A, some quizzes, some trivia, everything happens on our Instagram at Radio Runway Pod. And with that, I think it's time to throw to our wonderful man, in the black box segment, black box. Gentlemen, and to our listeners at home, tonight's going to be an interesting one. For tonight's black box episode, on episode five of the Radio Runway podcast, we are going to try put the pieces together and try come up with our own theories on what happened to MH370. That's very good. So, it has been. Nine years since the aircraft had disappeared on the 8th of March 2014. For our listeners at home, we're just going to go back in time and listen to the facts that we know. MH370 was a Boeing 777-200, registered 9M-MRO, so 9M Mike, Mike, Romeo, Oscar. It departed Kuala Lumpur and was scheduled to land in Beijing. There were 239 souls on board. The captain was Zahari Ahmad Shah and first officer was Farik Abdul Hamid. And on the 8th of March, the plane just vanished off radar. Now, there is a new Netflix series called MH370, The Plane Disappeared. We all have seen the documentary. It's a three-episode documentary. There's pretty much three theories that the documentary touched based on what they think happened to the aircraft theory one was the pilot it being a mass murder suicide unfortunately sadly that's what they thought the second episode having a theory of the plane being hijacked from the inside that apparently someone snuck into the avionics compartment of the aircraft attached their computer and controlled the aircraft from there and then the third theory was based on the intercept that the US had intercepted the aircraft with two AWACS during the point of where they were going to contact Vietnam airspace and that when they didn't follow instructions from the AWACS, the plane was shot down. Now, I'm not going to lie. Based on the documentary, I feel the the last two theories are very far-fetched. Just so many things don't make sense. But again, everything is a theory to this point, isn't it? I mean, we all... we pretty much still don't know where the aircraft is. We found pieces of it. Yeah, but there's so much of, like, majority of the aircraft hasn't been found. We've only found a few like, pieces of wreckage, but all, right. all the evidence is still hidden. So the facts that investigators do have to go off is very limited. So that's why all of these theories, as far-fetched as they can seem, sometimes there are some situations where we still have to consider them. That's right. And, again, still to this day, I feel, even though the search has been called off, they are no longer searching for MH370 until further evidence is or can be found. But yeah, until that point, everyone is trying to do their best to try to figure out where the plane is. At the moment, everyone thinks it's towards the western part of Australia in the Indian Ocean. Now, that's where the parts have come up near Madagascar in the, uh, um, Africa. So, gentlemen, if I can get from you guys what potentially we think happened to MH370. Let's try put these pieces together. Well, I want to start by saying how harrowing the final words on the radio were. Yeah. MH370, good night, right? MH370, good night. Oh, man. Good night, Malaysian 370. Those Which were the last Captain, words. Captain, Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah, and it was about one nineteen. In the morning, it was a night flight. It was pitch black, nothing to be seen. It was a very clear night as well. That's another fact that we do know of. But it's a very interesting topic, I say MH370, is simply because there's a lot that's unknown. So once again, 
as information for the viewers. The stuff that we'll be saying from from this point forward will be our best estimations. Yeah, based exactly on, right. Based on the evidence that we have found that actually yep. happened. None of what we've actually You're going what, to be saying yeah. is 100% confirmed. No. I mean, even before you were talking about some of the parts that have been found washed away on the beaches um, in Reunion. Yep. That was one of them. And um, in Africa, we found a couple. They're highly likely to be from MH370. That is correct. They are not, like, they cannot fully confirm it 100%. They're highly likely. They're highly likely because pretty much the pieces that were found don't really, they resemble aircraft debris. We know that it's aircraft debris, but the indications, we don't have any paint stripes off the livery, for an example. We don't know if it's a Malaysian livery aircraft. And on one of the parts that we did find, the serial number, there was only one serial number that could link back to Malaysian Airlines where I think investigators want to, potentially match multiple serial numbers in an attempt to say, okay, this is from MH370. Of the debris that was found, though, was it concluded that the debris found was from a 777? Or could they not even figure that out? I think they did say, you can even, everyone listening at home, fact check this, but they did assume that this was from a 777 based on the size and the kind of material that was debris that was found but again from what nick was saying everything we're about to say tonight is what we think potentially happened based on evidence and theories that we have put together ourselves i mean there's a lot of theories out there some there of is. them uh relatively sane some of them are absolutely crazy i mean there are theories out there <sighs> that mh370 got swallowed into a black hole well, why don't we all go around the room first and talk about what we actually think happened yeah, and I'll why like it that. happened. I'll so, like Christos, hear- maybe you can start us off with your theory. Okay, yeah. so I do need to be careful in what I say here. Again, it, this is a really touchy subject, especially for the families and friends of everyone that has disappeared. Personally, based on the way the aircraft disappeared and the way government agencies have gone about searching the aircraft I find is a little bit suspicious now straight off the bat I'm going to say and again I do apologize because I don't want to offend anyone but I do think that the plane was deliberately crashed into the Indian Ocean by Captain Zahari I do think it was a mass murder suicide because from what I've gained learning about aviation the transponder and all the other tracking systems in the aircraft can only be turned off from the cockpit so i think as zahari was told to contact vietnam and he gave those sad last words and during that stage he switched everything off which before then he would have told the first officer to exit the cockpit and when he did would have locked him out depressurized the cabin so everyone would remain um, or become hypoxic and just for everyone listening at home Hypoxia is pretty much the lack of sufficient oxygen in the blood, tissues, and or cells to maintain normal physiological function. So it's pretty much starving the brain of oxygen. And when that happens, once your brain has been starved of oxygen, um, pretty much after 10 minutes, you sadly will die. There's no, there's no bringing you back from that. There's a historic example of that, isn't there? Yeah, Helios, uh, Helios Airlines in Greece. That's right. Actually, Helios Airlines... Flight 522, I think. Yeah, it was 522. Yep. Helios Airways Flight 522 was scheduled passenger flight from Larnaca, Cyprus. From Cyprus to Prague, basically, in Czech Republic. Basically, it was concluded that the aircraft was not pressurized correctly once it passed 14,000 feet, and it just kept flying and flying. Yep. And flying. And everyone on board was dead. So hypoxia just doesn't hit you straight away. There are a few symptoms, and for especially for pilots... It is very crucial as a human factors thing that you learn about hypoxia and how to identify it. Some key things are blue blue lips, blue fingertips, a sense of euphoria. It's really scary because really simple tasks become difficult. Mm. So, And at the altitude of what MH370 was flying at, which was about thirty to 40,000 feet, at 30,000 feet, for example, it only takes one to three minutes for hypoxia to settle in. And even at 35,000 feet, 
it's 30 to 60 seconds. So that's plenty of time for the captain of MH370 to quickly make everyone hypoxic. Whilst he was having his oxygen mask on, in the 777, the crew in the flight deck can have up to an hour of oxygen. So that's plenty of time for him to, I guess, establish that everyone was hypoxic for over 10 minutes, in which, sadly, they would have passed away, in which then he turned the plane around, flew towards the Indian Ocean, and then, sadly, when he did, nosedived the plane into the ocean. It's quite interesting, though, because he didn't fly directly to the Indian Ocean. So yes, when, thank you for pointing that out. he, for the first, I think, 45 minutes, the flight was very normal. Yep. Taking off from Kuala Lumpur, heading towards that airspace between Vietnam and Malaysia. That was very much a normal flight. Nothing Nothing, out of the nothing order strange. On plane trans- was on, on radar. radar. Once it hit that border, though, transponder turned off. Yep. It went around. And the flight path that we know of was that it went around and it followed that border to the island of Penang. And yes. at Penang, it banked right up the Strait of Malacca up to the Andaman Sea. And that's where the aircraft took a sharp left turn and supposedly traveled south yep. for six hours before finally running out of fuel and landing into the southern Indian Ocean. And I just want to know, investigators did find that exact flight, I guess, or tracking on... Captain Zahari's flight simulator at home, which is why I guess a lot of people are pointing fingers. Now, again, I feel really bad because I can't say he did it because I don't know. I do feel extremely upset for the families because everyone's probably pointing fingers at them when we we don't know. But again, evidence is pointing towards, or I feel it's pointing towards that. And it's really interesting too. And why I bring it now to my government theory I do find it suspicious that the way the government has gone about it because within the first four to five days, search and rescue was looking in the wrong spot until they later found out, no, the plane is further down south in the Indian Ocean. And I just want to note, when an aircraft crashes, for example, has a crash in, into an ocean or a body of water, the flight data recorder will send off a signal to give search and rescue an idea or tell them, hey, plane is here now that signal usually goes off for about 90 days the funny thing is the batteries in that signal are lithium-ion batteries that can operate 30 to 40 days but on mh370 those batteries were not operational they were i guess dead really they needed to be changed so i'm asking why was that aircraft being flown with faulty flight box recorder and flight data recorder batteries. Yeah, questionable engineering or airworthiness decisions being made potentially. Now, would have that given search and rescue a bit of idea where the aircraft was? I don't know. Yeah. It's important to keep on top of engineering. That's what good companies should be doing. Exactly right. That's our Alan Joyce soundbite for this week. We've definitely not forgotten about him at all. That's right. And, And no better time to mention it than talking about Malaysian Airlines Especially if this battery theory proves to be. Yeah. If this battery theory does prove to be, it's going to raise a lot of theories and concerns. Why was this aircraft flying to begin with? And just this is the aircraft that so happens to have gone missing Mm. and we can't get a signal of where it is. Yeah. Mm. So that's what I personally think happened. Okay. Again, I'm not saying this is what happened, but... From what I've seen and heard, that's the conclusion I've come to. Now, I would like to hear from you boys, some theories from you guys. Ross. Yeah, I'll go first. Look, just in general with situations like this when there's very little evidence, it's really hard to say this is what's happened. So it's important to keep as many options open as possible. But from the evidence that has been shown to us, I'm confident that this was definitely deliberate. because, And there are two pieces of evidence that support that. So firstly, the evidence of the transponder being turned off at the exact moment the aircraft was between two airspaces. Who else on the aircraft, aside from the flight crew, could have been able to time that to that degree? And then the second that plane was turned off, it was veered off course. That's the first bit of evidence. I just want to say one thing as well. I was talking to you about this last night, Christos. We were talking about how difficult it would be in a post 9-11 world for, I guess, a passenger to hijack a plane you know, we exactly talked right. about 
we talked about the Eurowings flight, which unfortunately... Uh, German, um, uh, German Wings. Ger- German Wings, my apologies. Flight where the first officer suicided yes. and crashed the aircraft into the side of a mountain. Yeah. Now, basically, that was done simply because the pilot was suicidal, was depressed. He depressed, had some mental health issues, so that was really unfortunate that that's he couldn't get the help and he turned to doing what he did. Yeah, but in in that situation, it was somebody in the cockpit. Now, how difficult would it be for some, as a passenger, to manage to get two pilots out of the cockpit and manage to get them in? Well, the thing is, there was another incident. It was, I'm pretty sure, oh, I'm pretty sure it was a FedEx. There was an Air Crash Investigations episode on this where there was another pilot that was catching a ride in which he was also having some mental health issues and he attempted to hijack, was it an MD-11 or a Boeing 7? I'm not too sure what the aircraft was, but he carried on hammers and other tools in a way to try kill the, the, the crew on the flight deck. With three pilots on the flight deck, he did some pretty bad damage. He heavily concussed one of the flight engineer and the first officer and the captain wrestled him as best as he could, in which in the end they did get him restrained, but... It is really hard for... It would be really hard for a passenger to get both pilots out. And don't forget, would it be just the pilots? If other passengers see what's going on, they're going to jump up and help. Yeah, that's why my theory... Sorry, Ross, for interrupting. No, but but that's actually a valid point because even if a passenger was to be disruptive in that sense to try and get into the cockpit... Yeah. Christos, you know this better. The pilots can change their squat codes to reflect that there is an attempted hijacking going on board. Yeah, so when there is a hijacking, the transponder code is 7700. And the way pilots are actually taught is there's a phrase that you can remember. It's actually 77500, not 77. That 7700 is for a general emergency or, for example, an engine failure. But 7500, the way you can remember it is 75, someone wants to drive. Interesting. So seven, Interesting. So seven five someone wants to drive. Just on a quick note, seven six zero zero is for radio failure. So seven seven six need a fix. Seven seven going to heaven. So yeah, <laughs> there. That's 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 one way instructors actually say to shins. That's how you can remember it. But yeah, seven five zero zero is the transponder code you would put in if your aircraft is being hijacked. I like what Nick- is that universal, by the way, or is that just what they teach you at your flight school? No, the codes or the like, no, I've heard like that the codes and, the and how you how you associate the phrases. I've with heard. That code. I've, I've actually he- heard the the code like the codes are universal, so the codes are for anywhere in the world. Yeah, I've yeah, heard. I've heard Qatar, and then the phrases are yeah, just yeah. A few flight schools I know actually say it. Yeah, I've heard Qatari triple seven F pilots tell me about it before. Yeah. So. It's, just, it's yeah, like a little cheat code and just how to remember, especially in an exam condition, if they ask, oh, what's 7500 mean? It's, oh, 75, someone wants to drive, hijacking, 76, need yeah. a fix. That's, so yeah. it, it's just like a pun on words to help you remember it quicker. And in terms of hijacking, I agree with what Ross, or what Nick said, sorry, about passengers going into a sort of mindset of trying to like stop a hijacking or help. You know, passengers going into fight or flight mode, pun intended. There, there would be enough commotion going on in the cabin and with the amount of cabin crew that would have been on on That's board at exactly the time, right the, one of them would have been able to notify the tech crew operating the plane. One, one of the cabin crew would have been able to notify the pilots to let them know, hey, there's an attempted hijacking going on. They'd be able to set that squat code straight away. But even in general, in some airlines, we know they have air marshals. So if there's an attempted hijacking, the air marshal is going to step up too. That would be pretty cool. I probably, I'm guessing not super regular. Do you think? Like, how often would you get an air? I mean, we talked flight? about LL in the news. Oh, where that's we talked true. about LL and their air marshals on board. And Very I, strict airline. And I'm they not have too sure exactly right, but I'm not too sure since 9-11, after what happened, I'm, I'm assuming, especially the FAA, would probably be enforcing air marshals on board a lot of the US flights. Yeah, yeah, definitely, actually. Good point. Sorry, Ross, we're really no, 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 no. into your conversation here. So what, no, what please, you, uh, yep, go for it. That, that was pretty much it. Like, um, look, the, that, was, that was the first piece of evidence that I think is pretty damning in this sense that it was deliberate. And the second one is obviously, look, I'm not usually one to blame someone for something straight away or especially to accuse someone of something if they're not here to defend themselves. But it really doesn't help the captain's case that there, there was a very similar flight plan found on his home simulator. Exactly. So I think that really doesn't help the case. 
Fairly damning. But I'm even if we were to keep this open, that there was an accidental hypoxia situation going on board, like because with Helios five to two, that was accidental. No, no one intended for everyone to become hypoxic on that plane. That's right. But Christos, you were saying before with hypoxia, you know, yes. si- signs that you can tell that people yep. are showing oxygen deprivation, uh, blue lips and fingers. Yep. Now, if that was an accident, you've got to remember the conditions. It was a pitch black night, very dark cockpit. What if the what if the pilots flying the plane wouldn't notice the discoloration? Yeah, exactly right. And the more so symptoms, I think they would have probably had, again, that sense of euphoria and easy task. Like, this happens a lot in the military. Military pi- fighter pilots and pilots are trained to deal with hypoxia. So they'll go in a special... I guess chamber, they will depressurize the chamber so the pilots do become hypoxic. And then they need to try be able to identify, oh, I'm becoming hypoxic. I need to put oxygen on quickly. And it's really freaky. So the person in there with them will have an oxygen mask on. So they got oxygen, but the pilot doesn't. They will give the pilot like those baby toys where you've got to put the star in the star, the circle in the circle. Oh, I've seen those And you'll see the pilot trying to put the circle in the square and just looking at it like he doesn't know what's going on. That's the best. That's how simple, like those simple tasks become so difficult. So if the pilot potentially was trying to contact Vietnam, but they accidentally turned the transponder off when they weren't supposed to, they were trying to get the plane back on track, but they kept turning and making the situation worse. And then evidently becoming hypoxic. But also. if you were, if you were changing frequencies to change uh, to contact different centers, yes, how easy w- would it be to mistake that switch to turning off the transponders? Like, because well, if well, the, if, yeah. if it was that simple, wouldn't there be more instances of um, flights having the transponders turned off due to that mistake? Well, again, well, I'll put it this way: you have a fighter pilot who's in charge of an F A eighteen Super Hornet or an F thirty five. You can't even put a circle into a square. So 100%, I get what you're saying. And I'm not too sure what the instrument or transponder panel, radio panel looks like on the 777, but I can assure it it wouldn't be too simple. It would be a a fairly sophisticated piece of equipment. So if it was very sophisticated to turn off the transponders... No, I'm saying the whole whole system in general is like the layout is pretty sophisticated. It's not just two buttons. Yeah. Is the transponder just a switch in the cockpit or is there more to it? Oh, uh, in in smaller aircraft, the transponder is a f- it's a few switches. Pretty much, you got yep. on, off, standby, and alt. So, for an example, before I would depart, I would have the um, transponder code on standby, putting in the transponder that I need to, and then before I depart, I switch it to alt. And then, as I'm flying, for example, departing Essendon, it's zero one zero zero, and then once I'm airborne and leaving Class Charlie or it's in an airspace, I'll switch the transponder to 1200. And then it's pretty simple in small aircraft. I'm not too sure what it'll be like in something bigger. Based on what Ross is saying also, when you're flying an aircraft, and for example, you have a flight plane in the system, when you're going from one point to another, whoever is going to... It's like you're getting handballed. When one controller gives you to another controller, it's legit them handballing you. And that other controller pretty much already knows everything about you. As your aircraft, your waypoints, where you're heading. For an example, if you're going to from, I don't know, Essendon to Albury, you put a flight plane in. If you've left F- Essendon and it's time to contact Albury for your controlled entry or high-level entry, they already know what aircraft you are, how many passengers are on board, what your true airspeed is. So, yeah, it's really interesting. When you're getting handballed pretty much to, from controller to controller, they know everything so Vietnam would have been expecting that in that moment, Captain Zahari, to contact them. And it doesn't take too long. So whatever he did would have had to have been really well pre-planned in making sure everything is happening in the exact moment he would need to from him getting the co- the first officer to leave the cockpit, locking the door, making sure the transponder is going to be switched off at the exact moment and depressurizing the cockpit at the exact moment to do what he needed to do in the event it was him. So just to clarify, on the captain theory that both Ross and Chris are supposing, I don't want I don't want to say yeah, it's, I, the, it's the captain. Like it it, it it feels it feels it feels wrong. Yeah, it it doesn't feel right to say the captain. All like all I'm saying is I think it was deliberate and it's unfortunate that in this and case some of the evidence is, po- to him. is pointing to the captain, but right, I don't okay. I don't want to say I don't want 
my stance on this to be it's the captain. Okay, well, in that case, before I say anything else, I suppose we should hear what Nick has Yeah, to Nick, say. please. Yep. Yeah, once again, for me, it's a very sort of interesting topic. It's a very dark topic to talk about, particularly in the context of aviation. The worst incident that's probably ever happened in commercial aviation and the fact how a Boeing 777, a huge aircraft, has gone missing, that is unprecedented, really. Um, and to this day, we've not found it. Um, on behalf of all of us, you know, our, you know, it's just scary to to think that a triple in today's it, it, age, it, it, even today's age, even even in twenty fourteen, in a world where air surveillance is so so broad, especially in a densely populated area such as you know Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and all those surrounding countries. In Asia. Like that southern Asian, that southern Asian region where there's a lot of countries and a lot of borders close together, you'd think that that would be either I don't know more thoroughly covered, or like it would be a lot harder for an aircraft to go off the map from there. Like it's just astounding that something yeah, like that could have happened. Planes just don't vanish off radar with as many pieces put in place to avoid such an incident happening. The fact that it still happens is astounding. It is astounding, and um, it's very sad, particularly for those family members and those who've lost loved ones and friends on board. Um, Our hearts definitely go out to you guys, but look, I'm going to say I don't want to point the finger, as Ross and Christoph have said, but with the evidence that we currently have, it's highly likely, I'll say, that the captain was the cause of why this occurred. Now, we've obviously mentioned the flight simulator that was found in Zahari Ahmed Shah's house that had a plotted flight path, which was basically identical to the one that was mapped out. What I want to add to that as well was when they were interviewing some of his friends and family, um, some of them were saying that he was not coping well because his wife and his family had moved out. He was living in the family second house. Um, there was speculation around the fact that he could have been clinically depressed. A second thing that I want to add, which potentially sort of... So obviously he's clinically depressed and you, you probably have the question now, why did he fly the aircraft to a completely remote part of the Southern Indian Ocean? You know, if, yeah. he, you know, if he was going to crash the plane, God forbid, obviously, and he wanted... To That's end the way his he own wanted, life, yeah. you know, yeah. why would he do it in that in the manner? Fashion in the fashion that he did. Why would yeah. he make, want to make the plane just disappear? And, and you have to think that area in the southern Indian Ocean is one of the most remote in the world. Like Perth is already the most remote, isolated city on the planet, and the ocean and the Indian Ocean just off Perth, I, I would imagine, would be one of the most remote areas, least um, contactable in terms of airspace. It's like me saying, "I'm going to you three boys. I'm going to grab a pin." I'm going to go throw it in the middle of Williamstown Beach and I want you to go find it for me. That's what it's like trying to find this plane in the Indian Ocean. Yeah, it really is. And um, we obviously haven't been able to find it yet. We found part, but we will go through that a bit later in the episode. Now, what I was going back to was why I believe this aircraft was flown to the very furthest point i guess of the southern indian ocean and for me it was half a statement it was a political statement really from whoever flown it most likely the captain with current evidence um let's say the captain did it um what we'll what we've actually seen was that zahari ahmed shah was very politically active he was said to be a very strong supporter of Anwar Ibrahim's People's Justice Party, who was at the time the opposition leader in Malaysia fighting for Islamic democracy and reform of the the current Malaysian political system. Now, the day before the flight on the 7th of March, Anwar Ibrahim was sentenced to five years of imprisonment. Now, the captain of MH370, he was actually at this court trial when he was convicted. So given the result in the court, given the fact that he probably would have thought that Anwar Ibrahim was falsely accused of what he did, even a political statement, and this was a deliberate act 
of would have been what set him off. Like after that on the seventh, yeah. Then that would have been like, no, nah, I'm like, it, it could have I mean? been, it could have been a political statement, you know, for him to hide the aircraft where nobody could find it. And in terms of my theories, so the aircraft was flown very accurately, and I believe that there was somebody who was flying the aircraft to the very end. Um, if we look back to the start where the transponder turned off, it turned off, it did a big U-turn back, and if you look at the flight path, it ran the gauntlet of FAR UAR airspace. And in my opinion, what this means is that you're running in and out of several countries' airspaces. That's right. And if you're doing that and you've got military looking you know, you've got an aircraft coming in, coming out, coming in, coming out, coming in and coming out. You've got multiple, you've got two countries that don't know whose jurisdiction it is. Yes. So that's a potential theory as to why the aircraft wasn't as obviously found on military radar as, you know, we might make it out to be. But just to go off what you're saying, yeah. and I'm agreeing here, but I, I'm also curious to know, as you said, if this aircraft was jumping in and out of multiple countries' airspace... Why wasn't it intercepted? I can't answer that. My yeah. understanding. Do you get what I'm coming from? Like I do, I do get what I'm coming from, but I think it could be a it could be a issue of jurisdiction. You yeah. know, you if you're an aircraft flying in Thai airspace, you wouldn't have a Malaysian aircraft come to intercept an aircraft that's flying in Thai airspace. No, nah, I'm saying why wouldn't Thai like a Thai Air Force aircraft intercept? Perhaps it was so. Once again, this is getting. A bit far-fetched, yeah, maybe now. We're going down but the rabbit hole a bit. <laughs> perhaps it was so well executed that the way it flew across that FIR, mm. UIR border... It wouldn't raise any eyebrows. It wouldn't raise any eyebrows because it was dead on and nobody knew what yep. jurisdiction there was. Now, there is a, another theory as well that Malaysian officials did see this aircraft on military radar. Wow. And the reason why they didn't intercept it was because it was friendly. And I think it was the defense minister at the time or something like that, somebody who quite high up who actually said that we didn't want to intercept the aircraft. It looked like there, it looked like there was nothing going wrong. And if we intercepted the aircraft, there were multiple nationalities on board, you know, like Chinese nationals. If we had intercepted an aircraft that was friendly for no good reason, because it was friendly, it would have sparked war within the region. Wow. That was a that was a genuine response. And, I mean, I don't really buy it, but... People lose their heads during incidents like this, though. Yeah. MH17 is another great example. For another episode, granted, but just so many ways to spark unnecessary needless violence. And just look, look at that. You like, don't, like a few months after MH370 disappeared, MH17 is shot down, which was also a theory on the Netflix documentary that it's just so odd that two planes in the exact planes, the MH17 was a 777 as well, is shot down after MH370 disappeared. I mean, the same year. Yeah, I mean, to all of you mega conspiracy theorists out there, whatever you're thinking about it being connected... I'm sure you've got your theories. You're wrong. Straight up, you are wrong. There is no way you can connect these two incidents through some sort of intentional decision or intentional incident. They are two independent incidents caused by two completely independent scenarios. That's the word. In the, sorry, words, independent scenarios. Why would you have one aircraft disappear, we can't find it, and then make MH17 so obvious. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that we were talking about as well. That's a big theory as well, is that was MH370 a terrorist attack? And the big reason as to why I don't believe it's a terrorist attack is if we've looked at previous terrorist attacks that have occurred in the past, 9-11, what's happened in Paris, what's happened in uh, Brussels Airport. Yep. They were they all make it claimed. They were all claimed. That too. Yeah, and they make it obvious. And they make it obvious. It's bad to say on an aviation podcast, but terrorism is unfortunately a fact that the aviation industry does have to deal with. And it is something that when it happens, as Nick mentioned, they take claim of it and they want to make it obvious. So why, if you're making an aircraft disappear, I don't see how that's making it obvious. Yeah, it's sparking 
theories, but look at it now. No one's searching for it. Now, coming back to my theory, we've obviously, well, I've obviously mentioned the fact that the aircraft was flown very deliberately in and out of uh, two different airspaces so that two different countries didn't know where their jurisdiction lay. What I will say as well is that the aircraft flew down that border and it flew to a island called Penang. Now, what's very interesting about Penang, that is the birthplace of Zahari Ahmed Shah, who was the captain wow. of the plane. Now, one of the theories out there was that he flew over Penang because he knew it was he was coming to the end of his life and he wanted to see the place where he was born. That's a theory out there. It could be plausible. There's obviously not a lot of evidence other than word of mouth from certain people that that is the case. But what we do know after that was that the plane banked right, went up the Strait of Malacca. It did 400 kilometers there and obviously did a big left turn over the Andaman Sea and went south over the Indian Ocean. Now, how do we know that the aircraft went south for six continuous hours? Now, this information came from a company called Inmarsat, which was a data tracking company, basically, and it was tracking the data of the engines. So nothing to do with flight positioning whatsoever. It was tracking the data of the engines and it was sending all this information to the engine manufacturer to make sure that the engine was running properly. But coincidentally, they picked up faint signals from mm. these in Inmarsat satellite data. And what they were able to do was because Inmarsat knew the precise location of their satellite, they were able to determine the distance between the the ping, if you want to call it that, and the satellite, and they were able to draw arcs. And these ping pings are coming from the engines. Yeah, they're coming from they're coming from the Inmarsat data from the engines. Okay, I just want to make and a quick they're making point. what's called handshake. I want to make a quick point on that because from what you've just explained, that form of technology is just amazing. It's incredible, right? But yet, this is one thing I will agree in the documentary. It's the fact that. If we are getting these handshake and pings from this technology, how is it that we cannot track phone signals from when the passengers were on board and when the plane disappeared? It was apparent that passengers were getting phone calls from their loved ones on board the aircraft. Now, I don't know when the aircraft... Were aircraft, they, though? Were they getting phone... But phone well, run off, phones, before run the off, aircraft, phones don't run off satellite, though, right? No, uh, I'm, pre- no, I'm my, pretty sure, like, during the press conference when officials were telling family members about what, what's just happened, it was really weird. Family members were getting phone calls from those that disappeared. It was... Really? Like, okay. I did not so, know about that. So that's... That's what I'm saying. It's really odd that how are they getting phone calls? They did mention that in the in the docker, didn't they? I remember. But yeah, we can't. And if it is true, how can't like how are we not tracking where these phone calls come came from? Very interesting. Very interesting. As I mentioned it, before, it, it was too little, too late. When the inve- sorry to cut you off there, Nick. But with, with the investigation, I just think it was too little, too late. They didn't chase on their leads when it w- it was fresh. Like it was in the first 24 hours of let's just say the first 24 hours of the aircraft losing contact with air traffic control, not enough was done in that first 24 hours to really set up an investigation to find out, to follow their leads, to find out where the plane was. And I think since then they were behind the eight ball for the rest of their investigation. Yeah. And what I will add to that whole in Marsat and the whole arcs, what we ended up finding was that there were seven signals since that maneuver wow. at the Andaman C. So seven signals, seven handshakes from the aircraft engines to those Inmarsat satellites. And the seventh signal was the last one. And we call it the seventh arc. And that gives us a relatively precise location of where that aircraft is. Now, it is an arc at the end of the day. So it runs anywhere from the southern point of the Indian Ocean up to an Asian country like, you know, Kazakhstan. Now, that's where that second theory of the Netflix documentary comes from, right? Was that the yes. that, that information was jammed and we think it went south, but 
it actually they, went north. Yeah, they jammed it to say to give investigators like the idea it went south, but really went north. And Nick, can you just add, please? This is where I find the documentary really just beyond ridiculous. Can you just add how they think they jammed the aircraft with that hijacking? So in the second episode of the documentary, which drove me absolutely insane I by the that. absolute stupidity of the theory. but It's pretty shocking. What happened, the theory was, was that two Russian men went into the avionics department and controlled the aircraft through a laptop. There is no way, ladies and gentlemen, at home, and I can confidently say this, 100%. There is no way you can hook up your laptop to the avionics compartment of an aircraft and simply fly. This isn't a flight simulator. It's not a game. Yeah, sure, you can have flight simulator on your laptop, but you are not controlling your gen- unless unless there's technology we don't know about. But again, that's like a conspiracy in itself. Is there technologies where you can hook up a laptop to an aircraft and fly? Yeah. So obviously, with what you said, Christos. Also, why that wasn't the case was because we actually saw bits of debris that was washed up off the beaches of the Indian Ocean. Assuming this was the plane. It is highly likely that it was the plane. So we saw a flaperon that got washed off on a beach in Reunion. We saw a wing flap that got washed off on a beach on Pemba Island. So that for me is enough evidence to prove that the plane was in the Southern Indian Ocean. Now, I think I was talking to you about it, Christos, yesterday, and I think where we differ in our theory was that I believe that the the plane was controlled to the very end. It was a controlled landing, basically. Yeah, I I get where you're coming from, controlled landing. The thing I... The reason why I think it was more of a controlled nosedive into the seas because with the debris, I don't know how an air, I'll be honest, ladies and gents, I would not know how an aircraft uh, breaks up after time once it's in the ocean. But with the way that the debris was found, I feel if the aircraft had had a very high speed into the ocean, that's what would have caused it to break up in the way it did. Now, and that's why I, as Nick said, we don't really agree is if for me, if he said it was controlled to the very end, it may have not broken up in the manner that he did because he potentially would have had a softer landing in a sense. So this is, I guess this is my theory as to why I believe that the aircraft was controlled to the very end. It was a, it was a controlled landing. It was a high-speed water landing. High-speed water landing. So apologies. if you look at the evidence, the flaps, the flapron, and you actually look at the damage, you look at the where it's all on the trailing edge. Yep. Now, what does that sort of tell you? it tells you that it was in the landing configuration because if most of the debris is sort of, if most of the ruin is on the trailing edge, it's highly likely that it's in the landing configuration because that would have been the first thing that touched the water when it landed. If it was a nosedive that obviously I think that you believe and that the ATSB believed for, uh, for three, four years, it would have been the leading edge. Which got yeah. which would have been completely annihilated. Yeah. And in my opinion, there would have been so much pressure because obviously this is hollow at the end of the day. There would have been so much pressure on that part that it would have been completely dismantled. Whereas if you look at these parts, they're not dismantled at all. They're still very much intact. intact. And granted, you know, the trailing edge has had bits taken off it but it's still very much intact. So that's a reason. For that's a fair reasoning too. I can't, I can't say no to that either, ladies and gents at home. So if it had a nosedive, there would have been so much pressure on the leading edge of these parts that it would have exploded and went into a million different pieces. And that for me as well is probably why we haven't found, I mean, we found 30 parts, but I actually don't believe that the aircraft is in a million different parts. I still believe that the aircraft is very it much is intact. intact. I still believe that the aircraft it would is very have to much be intact. right. You'd have a greater chance of finding it if the, if the parts were far more spread. And again, that going back and to the, the black box, floatable, the floatable parts of, of the plane. Like, don't aircraft the less, seats float? The less soluble parts. Yeah, I yeah, that's a better and, word. And again, going back to the flight data recorder pinging off that signal, as Nick has just mentioned, if the aircraft is intact and we're getting a signal, 
it literally tells us the plane is here. Not pieces of the plane is here. The plane is here. So what's interesting about this is the ATSB, their theory was that the aircraft went into some sort of death dive. Basically, the aircraft ran out of fuel, the engine stopped, and it went into a full uncontrolled dive. So when the ATSB, who were the guys that led the investigation to the west of um, Australia in the southern Indian Ocean, they looked within a 25 nautical mile search radius. And what people have come out and said is that they were looking in the wrong place. Because if you consider somebody that was controlling the landing, you can glide it a lot further than 25 nautical miles. You can glide, and it's interesting you say that, because even a lot on the last podcast, as I mentioned, you can run out of fuel on an aircraft and still glide. So if what you're saying is true, he would have had to run out of fuel and still put the aircraft in a dive, because, again, if you run out of fuel, the aircraft's going to glide, unless you put it in, into a dive. My my theory is, is that they run out of fuel, but before he ran out of fuel, he had the aircraft in the landing configuration. He was going able as to far control, as he could, going as far as he could. And it's quite interesting. There was a sixty minute segment, and there was a triple seven captain called Simon Hardy, who there was footage of him going into the simulator. He cre- he recreated the situation at the very end of MH three seventy, and using the calculations from Imarsat and what the a- ATSB had come up with. He showed that in the sim of a Boeing 777, you could recover the aircraft from the dive with just rudimentary flight control. And what we actually found was that the aircraft was put in a position that was 40 to 50 miles further away than the ATSB's original search position. So that for me is probably a theory as to why the ATSB didn't find anything when they were out there for three years from 2014 to 2017 because they were looking in the wrong place. They needed to look potentially even further Further south. Um, But also it's difficult as well because you've got to look at, obviously it's the Indian Ocean. It's a huge ocean. huge ocean, man. Big, big, big waves. Apparently the waves on that day were three to four meters high. Um, But at the the same time, the 777 is a big aircraft. It's a big aircraft, but again, it's like, once again... I'm going to get a pin, throw it in Williamstown Beach, and tell you three, go find it. Exactly. But what I was trying to say was that it is a big aircraft, and a lot of people out there do believe that you could still control... 100%. ...a aircraft into that sea and still have most of that aircraft very much intact. Again, a very fair theory from you, So that's my theory. Obviously, this is not justified by a hundred percent fact you can't so, be. no yeah no theory is at the moment it's uh, very unfortunate once again but let's move on to you tom what have you devised to be honest this conversation has been a big opportunity for me to learn and develop an opinion because to be honest i didn't have an opinion going into this my understanding was that obviously the pilot as you mentioned the pilot in command had some sim records that indicated that he'd flown the route almost exactly previously. And that's honestly the extent of it. I didn't know too much about it. Even watching episode one of the documentary, it glazed over so many small parts that it was difficult to get a solid picture of what the general public or the ATSB found through their investigations. To be honest, I think listening to you three has made me form a solid opinion. I have enough information to make an opinion now, and that opinion is that I think that the captain, I think the captain certainly had a role to play in the downfall of Malaysia 370. Now, whether he had a plan in place and the pieces fell together perfectly versus he had a plan and it went very differently to how he had envisioned it to be. I think there's no denying that he had to... Some of the blame based of of all of the pieces of the puzzle that we have has to lie in his hands. I know we've made it so clear throughout this entire episode that we can't say anything as fact, but I think all of the pieces of the puzzle point towards even the hypoxia theory. That has to in some way point towards even pilot error on the part of the captain. Like that there's still a part of a piece of that... Theory that points back to the captain. I don't think there's any reasonable theory 
that doesn't have the captain involved in it. I, I will just want to mention quickly. Sorry for interrupting, Tom. No, you're right. It's really it's going to be far fetched for me to say even this, but I feel like there's a little bit of part of me that still wants to look at the first officer. I feel like he's not being mentioned enough because again, remember Boeing triple seven. There were two pilots in that cockpit when that plane disappeared. Two pilots. Obviously, everyone's pointing fingers to the captain because of the evidence we have attempted to find and the facts that we know. Again, the simulator. But I don't know. Is there even a slight chance the FO could have played a role in it too? I think based off of everything that the four of us have learned combined through our university degrees and and in the aviation workplace, the industry, all our research, everything points to the direction that there was definitely a human factors element at play. Definitely. There was a power, not struggle, but there was definitely a power differential. Any first officer will tell you that the captain is the, quote, pilot in command for a reason. And it, it's, it's hard for any... It's difficult for any FO to walk into a cockpit and tell a captain how it is. It there, is. There, there's even a, a phrase, I think, I'm pretty sure we have to fact check this, but if there is a, a dispute in the cockpit, if the FO says this phrase, captain, you must listen, there must be a full investigation into what's happened. That phrase, captain, you must listen, immediate, wow. immediate investigation. Okay. Right. Interesting. That is really interesting. And it even stems from the uh, Tenerife disaster where the FO felt overpowered by the captain, was, I guess, intimidated, and then the, the captain just initiated a takeoff roll and two seven forty sevens collided on a runway. So, yeah, like you said, Tom, there is definitely a – there is more of a power setting, but that's what we get taught, especially what pilots get taught is the cockpit is a it, – it is a team – yeah, you have to work together, but the captain will have the last word on uh, on the situation. Wow. Well, let, let's cap this off. It's been quite an interesting yep. conversation that we've all had. Um, once again, a truly devastating occurrence. Definitely the devastating. worst commercial aviation incident that's ever happened. I will say that. I think nothing's ever come nearly as close to it. The fact that we've got an aircraft like a triple seven that has been missing for almost a decade now. Yep. Um, absolutely crazy. And we hope for you listeners that you guys have learned a little bit. Um, once again, what we have said is not a hundred percent factual. In fact, nothing really in this whole situation is a hundred percent factual other than what Christos said at the very start that the plane was a triple seven. It was going from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing it had 239 passengers, uh, 239 souls on board. That yep. includes the crew as well. Yep. Um, elements like that are confirmed, but that's about it really, which makes it a very, it's very a interesting conversation to have a talk about. And obviously I respect all of you guys and what you guys have in your opinions, that sort of stuff. And I also want to say thank you for uh, everyone's theory. Boys, it's been a pleasure listening to what you guys uh, think uh, what potentially happened and giving me the opportunity to present the black box tonight. Hey, thank you, Christoph. That was comprehensive in every yeah, way. Yeah, and well I learned, Christoph, you did a very good job thank there. I learned so much. And to all the folks listening at the moment, if you'd like to join in on discussing our theories this evening, if you have any notes, if you have any queries or questions regarding the discussion that's taken place, we will place an opportunity for you to do so via the story on our Instagram at Radio Runway Pod so that you can get involved in the conversation. Christos. Once again, thank you so much, gentlemen, for tonight's black box. And I just want to mention finally, all our thoughts and prayers are with those two hundred and thirty nine souls on board MH three seventy. We hope we find you one day. And to the families, our thoughts and prayers are for you guys as well. Hopefully you can get answers as well one day. Okay, boys, to lighten the mood a little bit after what was quite a sombering discussion around um, a terrible incident, I am going to bring back for a second time Root Roulette. All right, let's go. Oh, of course, he's excited. Oh, yeah, Nick's God. excited. Okay, right. <laughs> okay, let me pull this up real quick. He's had some bad luck in the last two episodes, so let's see if he can get his mojo back. Well, I was 
I was the host last That's episode, true. so oh, I couldn't. Have, I, I couldn't have won that. I want he to apologise. He was the host on the last episode. Let's go. Oh boy, bring it on, boys! I have selected routes that fly in or out of Australia exclusively. Ooh. Ooh. A little bit of a change up to the random ass ANA stuff from the first one. Very good, very good. Makes you feel Ooh, very, very good. good. Yeah. <laughs> appreciate it, appreciate it. We're going to start off with a real curveball. All right. Boys, yes. I would like to know. From and to and the airline, what is FX77? Christos. Christos. I just quickly said to and from Australia, so the aircraft can leave Australia, right? Yes. I'm going to say Sydney to San Francisco, FedEx, MD11. Nick. Nick, yes. It's FedEx Honolulu to Sydney on a 777F. Ross? Yes. FedEx? Yes. Sydney to Auckland. Okay, boys. We're going to do one more round of guessing on this one, but let me give you another hint. Yes. It is going from Sydney. It is on a 777F, and it is going to somewhere in the Asian region. Christos. Oh, that was Christos first. So FedEx, 777, Sydney to Singapore. Oh, my God. Yes. Is it FedEx triple seven F Sydney to Guangzhou? He's done it. Okay. Now this is I first really to myself. three. This is first like this to game. three here. Let's jump straight into the second one. Here we go. QR nine eight eight. Ross. Yes. Qatar. Yes. We don't have to set the aircraft, do we? He wants the aircraft. You don't need the aircraft. Oh, you don't need the aircraft. Oh, you Airli- don't need the aircraft. Airline to and from. Okay. All right. So no Qatar. From Qatar, from Doha. Yes. To Sydney. Christos. Yes, Christos. I'm going to say Adelaide, Qatar, Adelaide to Doha. Oh, my God. Nick. <laughs> yes. Qatar Airways, Doha to Melbourne. That simple, and I missed it. That's why I did it for you guys. That's why I didn't say Melbourne because I knew it would be too obvious. How about you actually learn how to play the game? Give me a Hamilton Island one. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm sorry, crack the code. You did pretty poorly in that, if you ask me. Whoa, whoa. Oh yeah, Yeah. I said that. No, that's fair. I did do pretty poorly. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide that. Give him a a Peach Airlines one, would you? (laughs) Okay, QF. Fifty-one, Nick. <laughs> yes, Nick. Sydney to Jakarta. Okay, excellent. Oh my god. Okay. Ross. Yes, oh, Ross. Qantas. Yes. Melbourne. <laughs> I didn't say where it was to. Doesn't matter. You no, already got it wrong. Can I go? Delhi. Or just no, it's my no. Turn. Chris Doss's turn. Exclusive right. Sydney. Okay, Nick. I'll give you Qantas. It's yeah, Brisbane to Tokyo. Christos. Brisbane to Nadi. You didn't say the airline. We know it was Qantas. Okay, Okay. Ross. Ross, Yes. Sorry, did we establish it was from Brisbane? Yes, we did. Sorry. Oh, why'd you give him that clue, Tom? Nah, I feel like you should... Nah, nah that, that, that's spoon-feeding him, mate. That's nah, spoon-feeding I feel him like I, I know exactly on. what it is now. I know what it is, too. I've basically... Nick doesn't I get a right to speak because I... he's 2-0. <laughs> All right, you know what? Singapore. <sighs> oh, God damn it, Tom! I'm going to keep that one. Is too. it Brisbane to no, Singapore? It is. No, no, no. Well, I got give it to Ross. So, yes, I, give des- it to I, Ross. I deserve that. It's fine. All right, all right. Nick's on two. Ross is on one. Christos zero. Here we go. Life is good. NZ. Ross. 
New Zealand and New Zealand, Auckland. Very brave of you. Very, very brave. Did I get the airline right? One, two, six. Christos. Yes, Christos. Sydney Christchurch. Nick. Yes, yes, Nick. Wait, what is this? Melbourne to Auckland. You've just got to think simple, fellas. Seriously. Okay. Sydney Christchurch, not simple. Wow. I got one part of it right. Play the ad. Sorry. Sorry about that. We're good now. Well done, Nick. What's the Nick win counter? The Nick win counter. Yeah, you're on three. Ross is on two. No, wait. And I'm on zero. Christoph and I are both on zero. Now, me and Tom are on a draw with the airlines. Oh, that's right. We're on a draw. We're sharing the love. So we've all won once, technically. You know what, Tom? If you want to say it's a win between us, I'm happy to say it. it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Nick, Christos, and Ross's wonderful voice and me tagging along for the ride as well. (laughs) Thank you, boys. Thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we'll say goodnight. Thank you for listening to episode five. I hope you learned a lot about Malaysian 370, and I hope you have a lot of feedback to give us. Going into episode six, we'll see you in two weeks' time on Monday. Thank you very much, and goodnight. Thank you very much, guys. guys. We really appreciate the support. See you you next time.